0: It also yeah. brings us back to, well, why do we need to do that, right? So, um, you know, really, it's literally what's on the inside that counts. So someone who had bariatric surgery, maybe they did or didn't respond fully um, for weight reduction per se, but also that maybe they still have hyperglycemia and diabetes or right. their lipids are bad or their hypertension or whatever. And so the clinical response to therapy is important and why we may need to add, you know, more intensive therapy like these even after uh, bariatric surgery. Yeah. Right.
1: So right. we have... At, at the time, it was, I don't know, tens of thousands of patients. I don't know what it is now, but at, we had about 10% of the patients had some form of bariatric surgery, whether that's a sleeve, a vertical sleeve gastrectomy or a ruin en y gastric bypass. And there's some of the newer ones, although most of the people that came in had a vertical sleeve, a VSG. Yeah. sleeve um, surgery and what and I, I love interviewing them because I'm like okay so tell me how your weight your weight history and then they got to their nadir their low point of, of their weight mm-hmm. they were doing well and then a lot of them describe the, the they felt full but the food noise and the satiety effects weren't necessarily there anymore and they start to slowly right. regain and right. again, my brothers that they they it's like they know what to do. It's like I know I'm trying I know I need right. to eat some more protein. I know I need to right. pound the the veggies and the and these yeah. filling nutrient dense foods and it's just it's it was like slowly coming and they could feel it coming back. And they yeah. said they start the medicine and it's like, oh, it feels like I just like I did right after I had the surgery and almost totally. the, a stronger satiety effect.
2: Welcome to the Active Bariatric Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Tarapelli, a bariatric sports dietitian, and I help post-bariatric clients achieve their fitness goals through better nutrition and addressing the problems that come from typical bariatric and sports nutrition advice that just don't work for an active bariatric lifestyle. Welcome to episode 50 of the Active Bariatric Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Terapelli, bariatric sports dietitian. I am so excited and honored to have on today Dr. Carl Nadolsky and Dr. Spencer Nadolski. Dr. Carl Nadolski is a clinical endocrinologist and chief of the endocrinology, obesity, and diabetes department for Holland Hospital in Holland, Michigan. He is an assistant clinical professor of medicine for Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. He holds board certification in internal medicine, diabetes, endocrinology, and metabolism, and obesity medicine. Dr. Spencer Nadolsky is a board-certified family medicine physician and a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. He is an obesity and lipid specialist. He is also the medical director of Weight Watchers. Dr. Carl and Dr. Spencer are also the co-hosts of the Docs Who Lift podcast, and they were also both NCAA Division One wrestlers, which is, of course, I have to add, because that's how we all know each other. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for being on. Thanks, thanks for
0: having us on. Yeah. And, and you, it. you said we didn't have to be too mature on this just like we are on the Docs Who Live podcast. So that's right. Hopefully we don't get you in trouble. We don't want not to get you all. canceled.
2: <laughs> no, gosh, I hope not. No. No, I appreciate it because I listen to your podcast. But I just want to start today with a little kind of background as to like how we connected, which <laughs> sure. goes back a long time. But um, so for everyone's listening, um, my husband was a wrestler as well. And a couple months ago, I was saying how I was I follow both of you guys. And I was like, Oh, you know, Dr. Spencer posts a lot about GLP one medications, and I get a lot of questions, and so do you, Dr. Carl. I but I had just seen a lot of some of his posts recently now. I was like, ah, I, I really like to have this guy on my podcast. And Adam was like, Nadolsky. He's like, I think I wrestled. <laughs> Nadolski and I'm like what of course of course. you know we go back to wrestling he's wrestled every person in the world and knows every score of every match and he's like so I show him a picture of you Dr. Spencer and he's like no that's not who I wrestled he must have a brother so we look you up Dr. Curl and he's like that's who I wrestled and he beat me <laughs> so-
0: which which was a rarity so so we got to we got to put him yeah. up a lot because he was a so, he was, very so, good wrestler. yeah yeah he was really good
1: He we was very good yeah no <laughs> <laughs> we're not. We're not
0: just blowing smoke up your ass. Yeah, he, yeah uh, was <clears throat> cool. I was a sophomore. He was a senior that year. The year before, when I was a freshman in the starting lineup, we wrestled yeah. at Illinois. You were probably there. You probably. Saw I'm him sure I was. Beat me up. Um, yeah. it, it was a rough go that 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 first year. And then, um, and actually, so then Illinois came in. They were ranked number four in the nation, and we were we were highly ranked, but you know, something like tenth or something. I don't I don't remember exactly. And of sure. course, I. You know, Adam was undefeated, ranked number one. You know, he got second in the NCAA the year before. So, you yep. know, it was a, a tall task already. And, yep. uh, but we had a good game plan. Uh, someday, if I, I get to talk to him in person again, I'll, I'll tell him all about it because I know how this goes from, you know, the, the times where I've been upset in my life. And, um, <laughs> And it, was, and it was, it was, it was, a, it was an amazing match. I was able to be disciplined for the one thing that I knew I had to do to avoid some of his really good uh, technical expertise that he was very good in, and I yeah. got my takedown, uh, you know, in one, and that propelled us to get our upset victory as a team. So it really, yes. you know, to, to his, um, I guess. Uh, Know, to sort of compliment him that certainly stands out in my mind as a you know highlight oh. of my career because it was you know not just me but it was you know also a fun team victory at home and Spencer oh, really? couldn't be there so Spencer was still in high school he was wrestling and okay. uh, I think you must have been a junior right Spencer cuz that was the year you ended up going to win the state championship yeah okay. Okay. and that uh, was kind of that was kind of a big deal yeah. for for Spencer cuz he was kind of coming out of my shadow and everything like that so that was you know, it was was just a a pretty good run, like a month for us there. And, and, but he couldn't be there. And he thought, well, okay, you're going against number one. He's thinking I'm going to give him a call. And this was, we had (laughs) P phones back then. Right. So I'll I'll never forget. I was with our dad we went to where, you know, our practice room and locker room is and I called him and, uh, and he said, Oh, how'd it go? And I go, I won. And he goes, no, 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 you didn't. I go, no, did
1: you you win? I go, did you win? Because almost sarcastically. Yeah, it was sarcastic. He was like, like, yep. I was like, shut up. (laughs) I I was like, what? Really? What the hell happened? (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) <laughs> um, but like, uh, brother is very good. But Adam, I mean, he is he's right. just like, you know, he was, he, he was, won the a, he na- was he another won NCAA He won and then, that NCAA Yeah. And,
0: the, and then of course, you know, let's, we can fast forward again to give him some more credit. He went <laughs> on, he came back around and he, he did what he had to do. Took it to everyone at the NCAA championships. He won it. Yeah. I did not have a great tournament, but, um, oh. you know, we had a, <laughs> it was, it was
2: a good That's fine. Well, it's, it's funny. Cause he was like, yeah, don't you remember that? I'm like, first of all, it was at <laughs> Michigan state. So I did not try travel with the team like around like a groupie i did go to a lot of matches i will yeah. say but um i didn't go to that one and he the, of course he remembers everything he's like yeah to takedown was like the last to the end of the match i'm <laughs> like no i mean you guys all know these things you, can, you know well, so you, you <laughs> can tell him i definitely
0: have that highlight scene in my okay. computer
2: somewhere <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well we'll have to pull it up because my yeah. boys will, oh, i've got oh, boys that oh, wrestle you know oh, no. so anyways so awesome well that's a little background as to how we all know each other so um but again i appreciate your time and i just wanted to start off if you guys don't m- uh, mind just sharing a little bit about, you know, why you got into obesity medicine and maybe kind of talk a little bit about your specialty areas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I guess I'll go since, you know, I went first literally, um, with Spencer. So yeah, we both were at Michigan state for a while, um, you know, wrestling Spencer actually went to play football that, um, when I was a fifth year senior and then transitioned to wrestling had to do with coaching changes and position stuff, et cetera. And, um, you know, and then we, you know, we had the plan to go to medical school. We, my mom's younger sister, was a cardiologist, and we went and visited her, and we were talking about our passion for not only sports, which she was also into, so she understood that, but, but also science. Our dad was a science teacher, her mom was an elementary teacher, and um, you know, we're trying to put it all together. And we were talking about uh, you know nutrition and and sports science, and we were talking about mm-hmm. insulin. She said, "Boy." you know, first of all, you guys should definitely go to med school. And then at some point later, she said something about you, you should really go into endocrinology. And I was like, what the heck is that? And then I realized it was hormones. And of course, you know, as guys, you know, we think hormones, you know, testosterone and all that stuff. So it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So then when I paid attention in med school, that specific month of uh, the specialty, when we're just learning about it, it's definitely different than a lot of other medical specialties and pathophysiologies and all that stuff. But it did make sense to me, just kind of dumb luck, right? That stuff did make sense to me beyond just the, you know, obesity, diabetes, that kind of thing. And so ultimately, I went to internal medicine residency in the Navy, um, had a good training program there. I definitely was good at, um, you know, endocrine cardiology type stuff. So all of my mentors there really kind of pushed me in that direction. And, and ultimately, uh, you know, got certified in obesity medicine, and, um, and then went to endocrinology fellowship at Walter Reed. But throughout all that time, then Spencer was in med school, and we were you know, really just developing all these interests together. Yeah. Right, Spencer? Yeah. About that?
1: Yeah. I mean, our aunt basically said you should go be an orthopedic surgeon. I was a heavyweight. Oh, that's so, right. Yeah. You know, Adam and my brother were 149 pounders. I was a heavyweight, right. a lighter heavyweight, but I just tried to gain, I was like, you know, at my biggest, like 260 something. Yeah. Adam and I definitely
0: looked more muscular, but Spencer's a lot taller. Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 So, anyway, <laughs> um,
0: I don't know. I, I, I
1: had abs. I had blurry abs you were, as a heavyweight. <laughs> no, you, were, you were a big, pretty big, big strong uh,
0: heavyweight.
1: Absolutely. Biceps.
2: Absolutely.
1: Um, so, b- they said I should be an orthopedic surgeon. I mean, a big, sure. big meathead. Yeah, I could go break some bones. And that's what the big – like, it's kind of a stereotype of ortho. It's, in fact, if you look at, like, um, some of these, like, medical memes, it's it, they have, like, archetypes, stereotypes of – of the different medical specialties and ortho. It's like these big jock guys that just like give them ANSEF. It's a type of antibiotics. The only thing they know, they don't know anything about EKGs. They know how to break bones and put them back together. That's kind of the thing. (laughs) In fact, I think I don't know if one of Adam's uh, old teammates, the uh, remember, is it Lockhart? John Lockhart is yeah, he an orthopedic Lockhart. surgeon? Yes he, no. is. Oh, wow. yes,
0: he is. Our what a small heavyweight. World. Oh
1: my god! I thought I remember seeing that. He was also very, good, by the way, good. <laughs> yes, very national good champion yeah, the same year as Adam. Yeah, yeah.
2: they were, they were a hell of
0: a, team. <laughs> they were that was good. a good team. They
2: were
1: pretty good. They were pretty good. But so it's like as a stereotype. The big heavyweight got to go do sure. orthopedic surgery if you're a smart guy. So right. anyway, I, I, I so I, I actually went. Uh, I transferred to UNC. Uh, Chapel Hill. Uh, It's a long story. We don't have to get into it here. It had nothing to do with anything other than I I thought I was Bo Jackson. I wanted to play two different sports. (laughs) Well, and Nick
0: Saban. It's all his fault.
1: Yeah. So anyway, it it was a whole thing where I wanted to go to medical school in North Carolina. I needed in-state residency. I was going to play football and wrestling, and it was very tough to do both. So I ended up just picking one, uh, which was wrestling. But I I remember shadowing the orthopedic surgeon for one day because the coach was like, go, go shadow this guy. I know him. He, he's a the big wrestling fan and wrestled at uh, I can't remember where exactly. I, it might've been Notre Dame. I don't, they don't have a program anymore, but yeah. And I remember in one, uh, one like day going, I know I want to be a doctor, but that's not the type of doc. I, it was, it was just like, I don't know. I just didn't, not your thing. it was not my thing. Yeah. And I, I really was interested in, you know, sports nutrition and you know sports medicine, and all that type of thing. Yeah. But it was like, I didn't really care about getting other people's like I I was very strong. I could bench press and squat a lot. And I didn't care about getting other people's bench and squat higher. I just wanted people to have a fraction of my obsession for this to improve their chronic disease or or prevent it type of thing. It was much more fulfilling to see people go from nothing just to something and see them Mm -hmm. and see them put their type two diabetes into remission and, and all of a sudden, like a patient told me the other day, like they finally felt good walking around Disney World with their grandkids, and it's like, and here I am trying to bench press, a, you know, trying a forty-yard right. dash, get a, a a tenth of your of a second off of forty-yard dash, and it's like this right. person just changed their entire totally. trajectory of their life, and that that felt fulfilling, and I, I really loved endocrinology as well, yeah, um, but. Th- Late in medical school, I was convinced to do. It's called family medicine. It's very broad, and to actually
0: like it's it's to be able to take of, care of kids and the parents yeah, and to, just the whole family kind before, of before yeah.
1: before they go into the more chronic disease state and be happy see, see the specialist type of thing right right so um that's 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 why I did that and then I've, and then I further specialized in obesity and lipid uh, metabolism uh, lipidology it's called but like. That, that's, that's the gist is that like it's really fulfilling to help people just get a fraction of, of that nutrition and exercise and, and change their quality of
0: yeah. life. Yeah, it was a lot of our interests that, that was like, so how could we use our interests and, and experience to help people? totally in a meaningful ways. And that's yada, 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 That's who live. Yeah, that's kind of the yeah. Thing. yeah.
2: And that's kind of what drew me honestly, besides just I, I want to learn more about the GLP ones and that kind of thing, which are, you know, a lot of uh, my clientele are, you know, more interested in learning about as well was I so I was a dietitian that also I did I was the team dietitian at a division one university here at mm-hmm. Fresno State. So I did oh, sports nutrition, really cool. and then did, you know, was doing bariatric uh, nutrition in a, in a surgical center here. And my area was so kind 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 of weirdly connected that it was like, well, why would you be connecting sports nutrition and bariatric nutrition? And it's because a lot of folks have bariatric surgery and then they have all these amazing cool goals because they've changed their life, literally. And all of a sudden there was like, it combined like my two areas because it was like, oh, well, how am I supposed to eat now? I'm trying to lift. I'm trying to run a marathon and I'm being, you know, I'm supposed to be on 800 calories a day. What can I do? And so it really drew me what you both... I love is that you really are big proponents too of resistance training and eating properly and the nutrition and the lifestyle component of mm-hmm. all of this as well. And that's why when I saw both of you, I was like, I have to have, I have to have them <laughs> on the podcast. So, anyways, that I that's kind of how I was drawn to both of you as well. But that kind of draw that brings me to my first question. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you guys, if you don't mind, just for my audience who maybe is just starting to learn a little bit about the GLP one medications. Oh. Can you just tell us a little bit about you know what do they do in the body? Um, you know. How do they act in the body? How do they help with weight loss? How do they, you know, help with improvements in other chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes, you know, cardiovascular disease, et cetera?
1: Yeah. yeah. Do, do, do you want to go, go first? I just, I, just, I, I, the, the very brief of it is that GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide 1, natural hormone that comes from our intestines. It's broken down very quickly, though. It has an effect on how our stomach empties food into the intestines. It also has an effect on the pancreas. It augments our uh, pancreas's ability to make more insulin, secrete more insulin. And it also has an effect in the brain on appetite. Mm -hmm. And so the problem with it then is like people always talk about, let's increase our own GLP-1 then by certain Whatever supplements, foods, yeah. and whatever it's broken down so quickly that it doesn't have much of an effect. I would say it's like peeing in the ocean. It's versus yeah. these the way that they engineered these new uh, medicines is that they found ways to make them so they're not broken down so quickly. Yeah. Sure. And so, and, and they also made them so where they hit receptors in the brain differently. And so, ultimately, for weight loss specifically, my brother can talk about the blood sugar effects a little bit more, but for weight loss specifically, they can hit receptors in the brain that just People talk about, it's not only hunger, yeah. also cravings. And then also there's something we're seeing this like food noise they talk about. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not just cravings for specific foods. It's like thoughts about food all day long and yes. something about it in the brain. It, it just dampens that signal to where people, and my brother will say this too. People will always say like, it, I now feel like I, what somebody <sighs> that's never struggled with their weight must feel like. I don't think about right. food. They say, I just oh, this
0: is normal. Oh Yeah. yeah.
1: It's amazing. Yeah. So, and my brother, why don't you talk about the incretin effect a little yeah, bit and so, that
0: right. Yeah, so those hormones, including the GIP, so when we if we talk about terzepatide, which is a dual GLP-1 receptor agonist. Not
1: terpelletide. Tel-
0: oh my God, no. that's amazing. <laughs> oh All no. All right, we're pointing that. And then, yeah. <clears throat> so, so both of them, you know, ha- have this, this concept and it actually goes back to if you give somebody even if they have like type two diabetes or whatever, if you give them IV uh, glucose sugar, straight you know, straight you it to their blood straight to their blood. You would think that would trigger all the things that needs to, to, to increase insulin, but it doesn't do it as, as well as oral glucose basically. Mm-hmm. And that has right. to do with the, you know, hitting those intestine, um, areas and, and signaling the, the release of these uh, peptides, uh, mm-hmm. naturally. And mm-hmm. so, you know, going way back when they were researching all this, we did have back when I was in med school, uh, our first one was called xenotide and they, they, uh, they were able to get it from that, um, the Gila monster, Gila, 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 Gila monster, the, the salivary glands of it, yeah. um, which probably scared people, but, but it was really, really, really good for, um, diabetes. It was approved for diabetes originally back in like 2005. And Mm -hmm. so I was a med student and it was like the new big thing and people were losing weight. Um, so uh, they, yeah, well, a little bit relative (laughs) to now. Um, but then the other things that were developed were these things called DPP four inhibitors, DPP, four, that's the enzyme that breaks down our own natural GLP, GIP, et cetera, that Spencer was uh, talking about. And so they help, they really are just very modest. They were expensive, (laughs) of course, Um, but they helped keep our own natural uh, GLP-1 around a little bit longer. And they did have some glycemic benefits, just not a lot beyond that because they weren't as potent as these, you know. the, the exenatide one was twice a day initially, then they developed a weekly version of it. And then there was loraglutide, which was mm-hmm. approved for type 2 diabetes initially, and that was a daily shot. And then at a higher dose for obesity several years ago, before getting the weekly versions that really have, have uh, you know kind of taken the, the world of medicine by storm to some degree, the semaglutide and now terzepatide, the dual agonist. And there's more in the pipeline agonists yeah. antagonists it, it almost gets confusing even to us like how the heck a lot of people are like how, how do they work if we're if one agonizes and then the other antagonist how can they both Yeah, Yeah. but it's—it's right. it's it's kind of <laughs>
1: yeah. so the, the very gist of it though these aren't fat burners yet there are some uh potentially coming out uh in in the future that have some of this increasing your metabolism type of thing but these are these are what we call centrally acting. They work up in the brain. They help They help reduce energy intake, calorie sure. intake, basically, and basically yeah. make people feel like, oh, wow, I I don't have to have, like, I crave that donut. I crave, I want to eat this, an extra serving. And now they go, well, I don't have to have it. It's really weird. Right. Yeah. Like, it's cool. But it's like, people are like, wow, I now have almost like choice where mm-hmm. an a- agency where they're like, now I don't feel like I have
0: to have that. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, we, we talk about the front part of their brain has the executive function, right? They, a lot of times they know what to do. A lot of times it's not a secret. We have to educate a lot of people, but for the most part, people know they need to eat more vegetables, lower the processed carbs, not eat a lot of fatty, heavy fatty foods, reduce restaurant food. But we have, we live in such an environment where we have such hyper palatable, high uh, energy dense You know, nutrient sparse foods that are just all around us. So the Cheetos, yeah, all the all the other parts of the brain. That food noise, the cravings, the lack of satiety—they just drive. They override that front part of the brain. And when we describe that to patients, they go, "Yeah." And then then they get on these medicines. And now nothing's perfect, right? So even these great medications—they are not 100% perfect, 100% effective. There are some with very very severe genetic disorders that that Mm -hmm. even these don't really work as well. But on the most part, they do really really well for those symptoms. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I, cause I get, you know, a lot of my folks will say, you know, I've had some weight regain after bariatric surgery, which, you know, also has a metabolic Mm -hmm. component too. Um, And, you know, what I have found with a lot of my clients that are starting these too is it it really helps them to kind of go back to what they felt like initially after bariatric surgery Mm -hmm. too, which is that quieting of the food noise, which I want to definitely talk to you about guys about, but it just helps with of course, reducing appetite, you know, better blood sugar response. I mean, it's almost like they feel like it's just a whole nother tool and a whole nother Mm -hmm. layer that they can use. And I'm a big proponent of like using all the tools, you know, help, that, that can help you because the disease of obesity is a lifelong chronic disease mm-hmm. and we need as many tools as we can, you know, have at our discretion. So do you feel like, um, in the research that's been out there, have you seen anything, um, that has been studied on bariatric patients yeah. with these medications? Absolutely. Yeah. There, there aren't a
0: ton of randomized Lir- trials.
1: Liraglutide is liraglutide was the first one be.
0: had, had some, um, trials and there's a, there are a lot of observational data, like or sure. retrospective analysis, which is fine. Um, yeah. and, and, some randomized controlled trials. There's at least one randomized trial of semaglutide that I'm aware of. I think there might be more where, um, you know, there were people who they, they had some criteria for they didn't lose as much weight as they expected, or an incomplete right. response to the surgery, or they had weight regain after a certain time frame, And right. they were given these medications. And they had what would maybe be expected for a reasonable weight reduction, even in addition to you know the the bariatric surgery, and in the retrospective right. analyses, same sort of thing. I mean, we're talking you know in the realm of ten to twelve percent more weight reduction, which is clinically meaningful. So that also right. brings us back to well, why do we need to do that, right? So um, you know, really, it's literally what's on the inside that counts. So someone who had bariatric surgery, maybe they. Did or didn't respond fully um, for weight reduction per se, but also that maybe they still have hyperglycemia and diabetes, or right. their lipids are bad, or their hypertension, or whatever. And so, the clinical response of therapy is important, and why we may need to add, you know, more intensive therapy like these even after uh, bariatric surgery. Yeah.
1: Right. So right. we have. At, at the time, it was, I don't know, tens of thousands of patients. I don't know what it is now, but at, we had about 10% of the patients had some form of bariatric surgery, whether that's a sleeve, a vertical sleeve gastrectomy or Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. And there's some of the newer ones, although most of the people that came in had a vertical sleeve, a VSG. Yep. sleeve um, surgery and what and i i love interviewing them because i'm like okay so tell me how your weight your weight history and then they got to their nadir their low point of, of their weight mm-hmm. they were doing well and then a lot of them describe the the they felt full but the food noise and the satiety effects weren't necessarily there anymore and they start to right. slowly regain and right. again it's my brothers like, that they, they it's like they know what to do it's like i know i'm trying I know I need right. to eat some more protein. I know I need to right. pound the the veggies and the and these yeah. filling nutrient dense foods. And it's just it's it was like slowly coming and they could feel it coming back. And they yeah. said they start the medicine and it's like, oh, it feels like I just like I did right after I had the surgery and almost totally. the, a stronger satiety effect. The the surgery helps more with the fullness, like feeling your belly full, but the yeah. the the medicine works up in the brain towards it's it. totally that satiety effect so oh, kind of interesting know. I think we're I think we're gonna see a lot more say so we're we're, we're gonna release uh, probably published data on, on our population but I, it, I like you said all the tools like yeah they're just different tools. Awesome. bariatric surgery yes. is the most powerful thing we have right now yeah. those some yes. of these medicines that are coming down the pipeline are pretty ridiculous to where I don't know what's gonna happen in the next 10 20 years yeah
0: so. yeah. But yeah very that good for you that. know the, the diabetes stuff so yeah not everyone sure. who gets surgery uh, goes into remission of their Type 2 diabetes, which is right. certainly the goal. Um, and so, you know, these therapies are absolutely appropriate and indicated uh, in that case for, uh, sure. for the long term health benefits. That's the key, of course, it's the yeah. health
2: benefits, of right? Of course. Yeah, and you know, so now and I I you know I listen to your podcast and you guys have been talking about you know the um that the medications now are being approved for obesity and for example the, and then now they've like different names so like of course. and and I always laugh <coughs> when you guys say they call every medic GLP one Ozempic which is so true because yeah. like everyone that comes to me is like should I be on Ozempic yeah. and I'm like well you know that there's other options right very yeah. frustrating you know? to us who like especially as an endocrinologist who've
0: been yes. using these for diabetes long before they were approved for just obesity correct but, yeah anyways.
2: And is there a difference, like, so between semaglutide and, and terzepatide, are there like any, you know, is there someone that would benefit from one versus the other? I mean, I know there's lots, there'll be tons of examples, but is there any main differences that you see or benefits?
0: I, I mean, it's, it's subtle. So, um, there are head to head data, um, specifically in type two diabetes where, uh, the terzepatide had, um, slightly better glycemic and weight reduction benefits than, um, you know, than the the base dose of, of semaglutide as far as mm-hmm. just straight up, but kind of across the board, it, you know, they're relatively similar, um, you know, as far as like uh, pros and cons, you know, they're both yeah. really good and they have fairly similar adverse effects, but everyone's a little bit different. We, you know, right. I think Spencer and I both had patients who had like more nausea on, say, Ozempic or wegobi the semaglutide. But then didn't so much on the terzepatide in the form of Mungero or now Zet bound for oh, yeah. obesity. Um, the one little thing I will throw out there is that um, we have a lot of data for cardiovascular outcome risk reduction for these types of medicines. So starting with Loraglutide and type 2 diabetes and established disease reduced cardiovascular death and overall cardiac outcomes. Um, okay. And then with Semaglutide or Ozempic, uh, it showed overall reductions in type 2 diabetes, specifically driven by uh, stroke. Trulicity is another one, dulaglutide, that showed reduction. And then recently, uh, the dose of semaglutide for uh, obesity in the form of Wegovy, in people with obesity and established atherosclerotic disease also uh, reduced cardiac events. We yeah. don't have those data yet for terzepatide, Mungero or Zepbound. It looks like it, meta-analyses of the big phase 3 trials, Suggest it. We all expect it because of the amount of weight reduction and all the clinical benefits that would make us think so.
2: Yeah, that is at least something
0: I I think people should be aware of if we start putting people with heart disease on terceptide, Just because I can't say for sure that the study did it yet because it's not out yet.
1: Right? Yeah, if you're if you're going to take two people with, <clears throat> let's say, class three obese, they have a forty BMI. Mm-hmm. and everything else the same, it, the, the person that goes to terzepatide likely will lose more weight um, okay. by, by a magnitude of like a, th- a third, probably more. So on average, okay. you see semaglutide at the high dose average around 15, 16% total body weight loss, maybe a little bit more uh, as they keep taking it, but that's kind of where the average, and some people respond even more, they'll lose more, but the average on a population level is around 15 to 16%. With zepatide without, diabetes, without type two diabetes, yeah. correct so so then, if you take somebody the same type of person, put them on terzepatide, it ends up being more around twenty twenty one percent and even if you extend it out longer uh, it, it may be up to more like a quarter like twenty five percent total body weight loss. So and
0: that's the average mind. You. Yeah. Compared that's the placebo, that's, which is always, you know, like 2% or so. So, sure. okay.
1: So to put that into perspective, let's, let's actually, let's take somebody who's, uh, let's say they're 400 pounds. Let's make it easy. So 400 pounds, 10% would be 40 pounds, right? Right. Uh, 20% would be 80 pounds and then 15% would be 60 pounds. So you're, you're looking at, I mean, the, this is pretty big differences. So, yeah. if I'm looking at somebody, they ha- have again, it really comes down to insurance coverages because insurance right now they're going like, yeah, we're going to pay for Wegovy with just Semaglutide, and we won't pay for Zepbound or Zepatide or vice versa. That's it might yeah. be changing here it's, soon, but uh, you go, it's all over the place. You go with what their insurance pays for, and right, a lot of times they don't even pay for good. anything. They're both pretty yeah. good. Now, yeah. I will say, just uh, the other day, uh, I had a patient, and as my brother said, this patient had established coronary artery disease. And if I'm going with what we know about randomized controlled trials, I'm gonna put that person on some maglutide just simply because I know that there's a reduced risk of another heart attack or a, right. a heart attack from this person. So um, but if you're going if if you're going straight for weight loss and glycemic effects, it's is gonna be better. But if you're like some other little nuanced things, yeah. uh, you know, cardiovascular yeah, cost disease.
0: coverage cardiovascular stuff. Yeah, um, But, you know, uh, we know from all the cumulative data that we have, you start getting over 10, 15% weight reduction. That is where we see the cardiovascular benefits of weight reduction. So, right. again, I, I definitely have plenty of patients who have heart disease, diabetes, and they're on, say, Ozempic or Widovi, and mm-hmm. And we have more clinical benefit that we feel like we need to achieve through weight reduction. And they have... You know, I've talked to them about, well, this is what we know, this is what we kind of think. And they say, right. yeah, I want to try switching. And, and and that's okay. And I think, you know, Spencer and I both talked about that. We feel comfortable with that oftentimes. But, you know, as long as the patients are informed, I think
2: it's sure. important. They can. Yeah. yeah. And um, the medications. So, just so pe- people know, kind of how they're t- they're taken. Um, you know, daily versus weekly injection versus you know oral. What what are what are their options right now? And also then the course of treatment too, the duration.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. the ones we're talking about are basically weekly subcutaneous shots. But like I said, okay. Exenatide was first a twice daily subcutaneous shot, and again, it was amazing, and it's way better than basically anything else. Um, and then Liraglutide in the form of Victoza, and then Saxenda is a daily. Uh, subcutaneous shot. And it's, it's actually going to be generic, like any, I thought it was coming out really soon, soon. but that, that is going to be a little bit of a game changer financially, to be honest, because it's a good medication, just not as robust weight reduction and glycemic benefits as these weekly ones. And then there was Mm -hmm. Trulicity, Dulaglutide, which is a subcutaneous weekly shot. And then Ozempic, Wegovi, Mongero, uh, Zet bound, which are subcutaneous weekly shots. There were some other ones that subcutaneous
1: for anybody knows it's, it goes right on your skin. These needles are teeny, 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 tiny. And everybody gets yeah, yeah. scared. Like I'm scared of a shot. I'm like, Oh my gosh. It's like you would, you wouldn't even feel it. It's a little feel pen. It. You just kind of yeah. click and then you wait for it to be done. Yeah. Um, there is, there is a, a pill of form of mm-hmm. semaglutide. Now, just for anybody listening, I don't know if you care about the biochemistry and all the, the <laughs> physiology, but like peptides get broken down in in gastric um, acid, uh, so like you just, just like you eating be, protein, yeah, you wouldn't be able yeah. you wouldn't be able to absorb these uh, peptides if you just kind of swallowed the semaglutide, Usually, it would mm-hmm. break up. You wouldn't absorb any. So they they formulated a special pill that has a special little. Uh, it's, it's actually really interesting. They figured this out, but if they found a way to change the pH of your st- stomach, you know, in a, in a very specific section where it gets to, uh, for it to be absorbed. Um, you have to take it on a, a very, an empty stomach with very tiny little bit of, of water. You can't eat for 30 minutes. You can't take other medicines. And that one's called ribelsis. It's only made for type two diabetes right now. Likely it's, they just submitted it for a much higher, higher, higher dose of it. It Mm -hmm. goes up to 14 milligrams right now. Uh, they studied it up to 55, zero, and that might be approved this year sometime. They submitted it to the yeah. – yeah, I don't know. They might there, get approved. There is but,
0: another one in the pipeline, the Orforglupron. Orforglupron. You know, uh, which is like – That's a mouthful. The, the Swedish <laughs> chef uh, <laughs> yeah. sponsored it. And uh, that's a, it's a smaller molecule Small that molecule. doesn't yeah. have to have all those little time. things. So it's also not as powerful as the other ones. But boy, I tell you what, you talk about that's having more good. tools in the toolbox. Yeah. It's pretty darn good. And if the more we have, maybe the better cost and then, you know, they might be
1: stuff. able to manufacture it like so there's yeah, manufacturing you know, costs mm-hmm. so imagine like right. normal pills are just easy to go through their little I don't know I've never been like I'm talking right. about like Spencer, I just go Spencer's through some shit.
2: I, <laughs> never, well, I mean
1: never, you, had, had, you had a protein
2: supplement you guys had a protein supplement coming we, did. we, we
0: didn't do it in our bathtub I,
1: that's I, that's yeah but I went to that factory and that's I watched them hardly. but that's not a pharmaceutical
0: I can
1: yeah a little bit but like actually you know what we should go we should go Um, we should tell Novo and Eli Lilly I want to go I want to Go look at their. We can tour. We can we can go tour Lily really in
0: Indianapolis. I think we can do that. Yeah. We should.
1: But I you can imagine though, like these peptides, you know, they can be broken down quickly. You know, they have to right. be put in the pens in a special way. Whereas like little pills. Um, might be easy. That's what they're talking about. Sure. It might be easier to manufacture these things. We're yeah, about shortages. The and and yeah. then you don't have to take those on an empty stomach because they'll get absorbed. You don't mm-hmm. need to change any pH in the stomach or whatever like right. that. Anyway, so th- those are the options now. And there's that some th- really good ones th- coming th- down there's, the pipeline. There's, there's one that we just, th- there's just a phase two trials are starting for this one from Amgen. Again, we always make right. a joke. We don't make any money from these pharmaceutical companies, Not yet. We, but but we're we love these <laughs> we love these companies because there's there's one from Amgen, and they're talking about. Like, instead of weekly, it's going to be much longer intervals to when yeah. you even inject oh, this stuff.
0: Which could but be cost-effective, too, you know, when you start right. thinking about you the, need all less. the cost yeah. of these things. But the retatride, Spencer, which we talked about in the Lift, that's that's also a lily product. It's a triple agonist. It has the value. Yeah, yeah no that one, really one still
1: will be weekly, weekly, I believe. It's a weekly but, one. But it's but talk they, about
0: efficacy. It's like, re- it's, people are just really, good. really good.
1: The fats just melting off people because it's it's it also has that there's a glucagon component to it which maybe little metabolic benefit increase your metabolic rate a little bit Um, and
0: animal studies suggest maybe the GIP of the like terzepatide maybe maybe. has a hint of metabolic advantage but again we don't say that because it just doesn't we haven't seen that in humans really yet maybe.
1: But the the future is very bright. They're talking about vaccines and all these different Mm. things. Now you got to be just—they have to be studied because, like, some of these drugs they look amazing, but like you never know. Like all of a sudden, oh god, people are having stroke. Like you don't know. We know know. know. that's why we. That's
0: why they mandate these huge uh, cardiovascular outcome trials Trials. that are many, many thousands of people over several years to make sure that we're getting the real clinical benefits because several years ago, there were some diabetes drugs that everyone thought should be having benefit. And it turned out they didn't. And sure. now that's why, so we're Just also looking. not only making sure they're safe, but now we're learning some of the great benefits. And this goes to other meds too. It's, it's actually lots of, really good. Yeah, you know,
1: it's, yeah. So, and this is, you know, of course the, the naysayers are like, well, remember this drug and remember this drug. Yeah, we do. And that's why they've put some of these things in place. So now nothing's right. perfect that, you know, no. I, I'm sure there's, There could be things that come out of the woodwork, but I will say these rugs have been out since, you know, as my brother's in uh, med school in 2005 is when the first one came out. So uh, we have lots of years looking at these. It's just as they add these new little components, Mm -hmm. you just got to be a little bit careful because you just... You just never know.
0: Yeah, it's they're yeah. not for like not everyone should be just be taking drugs like right. some people like to do so or they think that people are doing some people are doing it. Some people think that we're all just doing it. No, we weigh the pros and the cons, the yeah. risk, benefits and, and consider and think about, well, OK, we think we're going to get benefits and, and minimal risks. The more you know, risk the person has from their disease process, the more benefit they're going to get and the lower the risk ratio. Right. So, so re- you, the three of us should not be taking these medicines. It's also Great. why it drives me yeah. crazy that people are out there talking about, you know, selling each other, all these other peptides Ugh. that they, you know, for like meatheads like us, they're all taking stuff. It's like, those are drugs. Why are you guys taking yeah. it? They're not approved.
2: Right. For a reason. <laughs> so yeah. anyways, mm-hmm. that's a I, side note. Yeah. I mean I know and I, I your your episode on um you know how how like just like any schmo on Instagram can be like promoting these and selling them and mm-hmm. or you know, I mean they're like it's crazy. I can't believe yeah. how much it's proliferated on like the internet and and people that have no business with no knowledge or any bad you know medical background are like you should be taking these you know yeah. we can sell them to you and I'm just oh, like oh my god what the hell is going yeah. on no oh, that's it's chaos sweet.
1: yeah it drives us insane Ugh.
2: um but I did want to ask this question because I get this a lot which is you know how long do I need to take these oh, yeah, so can yeah. you just speak it, basically on yeah What's these,
1: these medicines are are intended to be taken indefinitely chronically just we think about blood pressure medicine we think about cardiovascular disease medicine type 2 diabetes medicine having said that there 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 are people in two camps and my brother and i are in these uh forums and we, we we laugh at a lot of people's responses because people are like obesity is a chronic disease you take this forever and it's like well okay but when you look at the the trial data they've randomized people back to a placebo most people do regain the weight so you think of obesity as a chronic disease however there's a 10 to 15, maybe 20% of people keep the weight off. And it's likely those are the people that didn't have this, we call it this neurobiological component of that disease of obesity. Mm-hmm. So it just goes to show that not everybody necessarily has to take it. It's intended to be able to be taken indefinitely. Mm-hmm. It certainly mm-hmm. shouldn't be thought of it going in as a short-term thing to get your habits 10 pounds to off get you, or yeah, and a vanity yeah. weight and, and just yeah. get your habits right. And then you come off of it. It's, it's, it's intended to go like, it's going to fight those, those you know, neurobiological components of obesity. But like some people just don't have, those strong signals yeah. in their brain, and sure. I, I, those people, it looks like they're able to come off. Now, whether they keep it off for five, ten years, we don't know. We don't have that yeah. data. But and and
0: we have habits that we know help people maintain weight, right? So yeah. all the exercise yes. that we've been talking about, nutrition, yes. um, habits, uh, sleep, you know, avoiding sugary drinks, all that stuff, and um, you know, and, and I'm sure we both have patients. Uh, I just recently had some this week who are like, I, I want to try, and I and I just say, hey. I'm here to support your efforts and uh, we're gonna do everything we can. What I don't want to happen is you fall through the cracks and you show up a year later and have all the weight regain. And I tell them the studies, just like what Spencer said. I show them the graph. I say, this is what happens when they randomize off into placebo on average, there's weight regain, but everyone's different and we'll do everything we can. We, We always wanna minimize medicine if we can. Of course,
2: yeah. No, that's that's exactly what I, I wanted to you know ask you guys because I do get that question and, and like you said, it's just going to be come down to an individual basis mm-hmm. and see you know how you respond. So let's talk a little bit about that food noise. I'd love to dive into this because I, I do get some questions on that. You know, what are you seeing with these medications? And and maybe just talk a little bit about um, what is this food noise that you've you know that you're mentioning? Yeah. Both so
1: you. it's it's different, and it, it took a while for my it. It's, it's all coming to light now because of these medicines it's it's been the concept has been around for for a while because of eating disorders and this kind of constant thoughts about food intrusive thoughts, constant intrusive thoughts about food that really affect your quality of life and that's 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 the gist of the definition and there's Q reactivity and some of this is thought to be evolutionary because we need to be food seeking but some people get this pathological level of it And again, I don't want to say like this is definitely this and that but like the patients describe these things, v- all very similarly. And I've interviewed, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people, especially on my Instagram, you probably saw my stories asking, can you define it? I'd get these definitions and these people aren't talking to each other. They're all kind of describing the same kind of thing. So think about hunger and everybody knows hunger. It's like, my brother's hungry every two hours and he'll get really mad if he doesn't have his I get angry. P- piece of
0: you know, my and from my, stomach. whatever
1: yep. i get mad too. I get hangry and whatever, but like everybody You're can feel terrible. that here. Yeah. You get real irritable and they and can feel it uh, in your stomach. Cravings are different. You can be kind of full at night. You just, and like I always get these salt, it's a salty, um, uh, starchy kind of craving at every single night. And it's specific. Food noise is different, and this is what they say. It's just not specific. It doesn't have to be anything desserty or anything like I'm talking about chips, like Pringles or whatever. It's just thoughts about food. When are you going to eat next? Like what? I I don't want to. I want to make sure I get to eat. uh, Very anxious around food, like about Mm -hmm. food, Mm -hmm. and it's it's really interesting because what happens then? They take these medicines, and that's that's the thing they notice most. Like yeah, sure they have. It's more satiety they have. They're not hungry. Mm -hmm. They're not craving things, but it's the thoughts. And that's why they're saying they have less anxiety now. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's amazing to me because it's like, whereas these other drugs in the past, we've had older drugs and they they help with satiety and cravings and hunger. But the food noise is what people are like, oh my gosh, I just, I'm not even thinking about it. It's almost like we're treating
0: a a mental health aspect to it in some ways. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So that's, that's, that's really again, this has to be studied. I think they need to start doing, uh, fMRIs and, and all sorts of stuff to go, where is this in the brain? Let's study this more. And we're trying to do some of this uh, research on, on my science team. And because it's interesting to me, I, I don't like to yeah. say two things too concretely because it's like, cause we, it's don't kind really of, it's, we don't really know it's sure. a
0: lot of unknowns, yet, but it's, w- but the bottom line is they're, they're good for these people.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. I appreciate that explanation because I, I, yeah, I think that that's kind of what I hear a lot of folks is once they've started it, they just don't have that c- kind of chronic thought around yeah. weird. You know, food, when I'm going to eat next. Like, yeah. It, yeah. And they're just like, it's one less thing. I don't even have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. You know, like I just live my life. And also just like even, um, the cravings for like alcohol. I've had some, yeah. yes. like- say, you know, say I'm not even drinking. Yep. Yeah. That's a, so a it's, thing. It,
0: a lot of these same neuroendocrine things open the brain, you know. They, mm-hmm. you know, you, you'll notice there's overlap between a lot of the different medications too, for mm-hmm. alcohol, smoking, other drugs, and food. It, you know, there's something to that. Something correlated.
1: Very yeah. interesting stuff.
0: Okay.
2: So, and then um, just something that we're all kind of in the same arena in, which is, we, I, I'm a big proponent of when I have my folks that I work with, you know, have had bariatric surgery, and of course through that rapid weight loss phase initially, they do often lose muscle mass. And so something that all three of us are kind of in a big agreement, which is resistance training and the importance of that and improving your diet. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, there have been some stories out there and and people that I know you guys are in (laughs) super agreement with that have said that uh, these medications can lead to muscle wasting or muscle loss. Um, And I don't know that that's necessarily true across the board. Can you just speak on that a little bit?
1: I'll just say the gist of it is that there's nothing specifically about the GLP-1 agonism that should be causing specific muscle catabolism. Mm-hmm. What likely is going on is that we're now seeing people lose huge amounts of weight very quickly and yeah. people just aren't used to that. And so when you look at some of the subset data, when you when you look at people losing weight, whether it's diet, exercise, even bariatric surgery, you, you're going to lose some amount of mostly fat, and then there's some amount of lean body mass loss. And there's a mixture of it. And you usually see around 25, you know, 20 to 25% lean body mass loss. In one, in a subset of the semaglutide semaglutide trial, step one, and also um, actually one of the ozempic ones, it looked like there's a signal for slightly higher than what would be expected um, lean body mass loss. But when you look at the terzepatide uh, trials, it looks right about where you'd expect We don't know. We've had body composition experts. It's being studied right now. We don't know if it's actually muscle because lean body mass on a DEXA scan could be- You can't tell what it is. Right, right. What I will say (laughs) is my patients, I've never seen the signal in it. My patients, if selection bias, we're lift, We focus on lifting. We focus on protein. Uh, I've never seen it. Even if there was one patient or one not patient as a follower had a slightly higher than what I expect and they're like, I don't get it. I'm deadlifting getting PRs I'm doing pull-ups now and I'm just like functionally I don't really care as long as they're improving so um, and and
0: here are the data right so despite that signal of a little bit more increased lean mass loss and yeah they were not probably doing resistance training like we want people to do and we know that that is the key to preserving muscle mass and then we can you know get into protein but despite that they had improved glucose metabolism improved lipids improved blood pressure. And now we know improved cardiovascular outcomes, whether they have obesity, heart disease, or diabetes with a high risk of heart disease. And, and importantly, like Spencer just said, in the data, improved physical function. And oftentimes that includes strength and all that stuff. So it's like, even even if they did lose muscle mass, which we don't yeah. want anybody to lose muscle mass, no, they had not. all the health benefits. So the fact yeah. that there's this one person—I don't know if we're allowed to have, do the Peter Tia scaremonger or the uh, Hater <laughs> podcast <laughs> on hers, but um, <clears throat> but you know, there's no reason to scare people away who no. should Please benefit don't. from these. Should yeah. we take the medicines? No. Yeah. But should Correct. the people with the highest risk? Yes, and they yes. should weight train, and we'll make sure they get the protein.
2: Yeah, because that's that's one of the biggest things that we talk about on, on my podcast, which is the importance of, you know, enhancing body composition after bariatric surgery. When you go through the rapid weight loss phase, we want to then, you know, start trying to change body composition, meaning enhance, you know, lean muscle mass if possible through, you know, nutri- and of course, I focus on the nutrition area. Um, and I want to talk to you guys about that right now, which is let's talk a little bit about protein and that kind of thing. So when folks are on these medications, and we want to preserve muscle tissue or, or you know, minimize muscle loss if possible through that when they were losing weight. What do you recommend to your patients in terms of nutrition? You know, what do you generally tell them? 1 to
1: 1.2 grams per kilogram. If you can get higher than that, fine. But that's that's where, and this needs to be studied
0: too. It just straight
1: up needs to be studied.
0: We had had a good podcast episode with um, Stuart Phillips, who's like a renowned protein guy a couple yeah. months ago and, and it was really good. And, and, you know, it depends on the person if they're, you know, how much weight they need to lose, what what's going on, you know, are they weight training, all the, all the things. So, but right. that's about it. Yeah. Maybe a little bit yeah. higher if we're really cutting calories.
2: And what about like fluids and like, you know, cause I, I do have some folks that say when they're on the medication, they either had constipation or they've had some diarrhea. Is there, do, do you, I mean, I promote, I tell them to, you know, make sure they're staying hydrated throughout when they're taking these medications as well.
1: Yeah, that's we we focus on hydration, try to get as much water as you can. You know, some people yeah. just forget to drink.
0: Right. Because yeah.
2: they're not, right. They're right. not yeah, we all do. Overall and, reduced intake, yeah. yeah.
0: And quality of nutrition, too, you know, not just cutting yeah. calories and getting right. poor nutrition. We want, uh, you know, uh, nutrient dense, high fiber vegetables, beans, legumes, fruit for our carb sources, just like we would tell pretty much kind of anybody. And, uh, yeah. you know, and that's good yeah, for their, absolutely.
2: you know, for their, for towels. life anyways. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And how many days a week do you guys generally uh, recommend to your um, patients to like try to resistance train?
1: At least two. I mean, if you can yes. get one, if, if you can't get anything, get one, if you, if you can yeah. at least get two, then three. Yeah. I was was about to say
0: mandated twice a day, but not. But you know, yeah, exactly. Each muscle group should probably, you know, it'd be an ideal goal to get twice a week for each muscle group,
2: ideally we can. Perfect. Okay, good. Okay. Is there anything else that like I missed that you get questions on on, on GLP ones? You think? Are we, I think, think we, we hit it all. all. You we like covered we it all. very well. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> good. good. I wanted to make sure we got all of it covered because like I said, I, I just get a lot of questions on it and just want to, you know, again, and the people that listen to this, you know, it's kind of a, it's a newer tool that they yeah. can use as, a, as an adjunct therapy to bear. I guess I will surgery. say other
0: safety aspects, you know. Um, sure. You know, the pancreatitis signal doesn't look to be concerning in all the meta-analyses. Um, yeah. Pancreatic cancer doesn't look to be concerning. Concerning a hint of a risk of gallbladder disease looks to be the one thing that actually is a real thing, um, okay. and that should be uh, have some awareness. But otherwise, mm-hmm. um, pretty darn safe from what we can yeah. tell too.
2: Yeah. So just basically reach out to their primary cares of the city yeah. that they want to learn more about and Absolutely. go from there. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, so can you tell me, uh, tell everyone a little bit more about where they can follow you guys, maybe talk about your podcast Dr. So-
1: podcast. You can yeah. follow us on Instagram, Dr. Uh, Nadolsky and then Dr. Carl Nadolsky. I took the Dr. Nadolsky. Yeah. He's, uh, <laughs> he's the younger millennial who got into social yeah, media. Yeah, I got I it faster. <laughs>
2: yeah. And you guys have, and you both have Twitter accounts, right? Yeah. You can, Same thing. yeah. are yeah. Twitter yeah. at least. Yeah, and
0: TikTok. Okay, Spencer doesn't I love
1: want TikTok. I, I do a little TikTok. He
2: tries. <laughs> you know, I try to do all the things. I know. Yeah. When I became a dietitian, and, and, you know, you go to school, you're learning all the clinical stuff. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go into private practice. And I had no idea how to do anything oh. in social media. Yeah, you know, and at, it's just been you're, a steep you're, learning. You and I
0: are, you're, yeah, we're probably similar ages and Spencer's uh, yes. age group did
2: better. <laughs> yes, correct. I know. I'm just like, oh my gosh. So, and Adam, my husband's always like, babe, you got to, you know, do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, oh, Well, he's, he's older than I am, so him, but he's a tech guy. Guy, right? yes. Yeah, he's he's in a right. well, he's in a finance, but he yeah, he does all this stuff. Uh, okay. So, anyways, I appreciate you guys' time today. Thank you yes. so much for coming on, both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, I so Absolutely. appreciate it. We'll do it
0: again. It's you.
1: Bye-bye. Absolutely.
2: Okay. Take care you guys. And if you'd like to follow this, um, episode, you can watch it on my YouTube channel, the active bariatric nutrition channel. And if you'd like to learn more about my bariatric nutrition coaching services, please go to my website, which is active And we will do this again next week. Thanks you guys.